0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. Today we're here with Javad Kazali. Hi, Javad. Hi, everyone. Javad, welcome. Thanks. We're here to talk about one of your areas of law that you focus on, which is immigration law. And uh, I met you a while back through others in your firm of Kazali Wersh. You work with Jim Wersh here in St. Louis. Could you tell us a little more about your firm and then a little more about you and your background?
2: Yeah, so we've got a pretty interesting firm. I do two types of work. I do immigration, a vast amount of different types of immigration, and we do 1983 civil rights work. So we've been involved in a lot of police brutality cases. We just settled a large class action against the St. Louis Police Department. So I consider myself a civil rights attorney and I consider immigration to be a subset of civil rights. I went to law school at Washington University in St. Louis and during my last semester I got picked to go out to D.C. to work for a senator. And while I was out there I learned more and more about the government and I ended up getting hired as a presidential management fellow first for the INS, and that would have been in early 2002, and then our whole team moved over to Homeland Security. So my career didn't really exist until about a year earlier when September 11th happened. So I spent about 10 years at the Department of Homeland Security using immigration laws to litigate in terrorism cases. Then I met my wife out there She's from St. Louis. We ended up having her join Homeland. Then we went to Chicago, where she stayed with Homeland. And I went to the Department of Labor and I ran their nationwide immigration program for four years, one of their programs. Then went to a small firm, came here in April of 14 and opened the firm.
1: What was the focus of your work at DHS?
2: So mine was counterterrorism. I was a part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So anytime you would have... Any kind of major terrorism investigation, there would always be an immigration component of it. I think the best way I heard anybody describe this was when you think about the Capone days, Capone didn't go down for racketeering. He went down on tax charges. Every terrorism case that's domestic has some kind of immigration component. Now, sometimes there would be cases which we'd call a like capital T terrorism. These are bad guys in the US trying to do bad things to Americans. But other times it would be cases in which somebody was involved in some kind of terrorist act in another country against people that have nothing to do with the U.S., but we still didn't want them here. Sometimes it was just people raising, one of these were just, but it was people raising money for terrorist organizations. So we would use the Immigration Nationality Act to help remove those people. Sometimes even, and these were the cases that I thought were the most interesting, we would have another law enforcement or, or intelligence agency reach out to us and say, this is a bad guy. We need to do something. But we don't want them to know that we're looking at them. So we would be able to look at the case and find some kind of immigration violation and go forward with that without the person knowing that there was other interests. So what
3: brought you to this? Were you from St. Louis originally?
2: Yeah. So I was born in Iran in 1975. My dad got accepted into a Ph.D. program at Michigan State. So we moved to America when I was two in 77. The revolution happened two years later, we were like, America's probably a good place to hang out.
3: You guys got out at the right time. Yeah.
2: The, <laughs> the topic was great. Then in the early 80s, my dad got a job as a professor at SIU Edwardsville. Okay. So we moved to Edwardsville in, I think, 82 and was raised here. Went to school in Edwardsville, went to the University of Illinois, went out to L.A. for a bit, came back, went to school at Wash U, then D.C., then Chicago. Then never thought I'd come back, but St. Louis pulls you back.
3: Cool. And what do you? What drove you to the private practice? You just...
2: Yeah. So, one, doing the terrorism work has an expiration date. Before I had joined the national security team, no attorney had been working in that field for more than three years. I left... After about nine years, it was really cool when you would go to the New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, and on a weekly basis, you'd see one of your cases. But there's just so long that you can do it.
3: Draining on you a little bit.
2: Yeah. Time for a change. It was time for a change. And then we moved to Chicago. I took a job with the Department of Labor. There are a lot of great things about working for the government. I was in court on a weekly basis less than six months after I graduated from law school. That was great. Yeah, that's got, unusual. Yeah, I got litigation skills. I'm trial by fire. That was mm-hmm. great. But one of the problems is that eventually you either have to leave the litigating role and move into a management position, and I didn't really want to do that, or you get to a position where you have a boss above you who is so bad that they could never get promoted, but also not bad enough to get ever removed. To I just stuck <laughs> under somebody. I think it's called the Peter Principle about you move somebody to a position until they're so bad at it that yeah. they can't move. And yeah. I ended up working for some of those people and it was just a time.
3: It, we rise to the level of our incompetence? Or-
2: Correct. Like- Correct. And that absolutely happened when I was in Chicago at the Department of Labor.
1: So maybe we can, you can help us with some of the terminology. Some people have used the term illegals. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what's wrong with that and what term is should be used in your opinion
2: yeah so one of the things that we've seen in immigration especially over the last 25 to 30 years is that's become very politicized it has been used as a cudgel and terminology is important the term illegal immigrant you no know, people aren't illegal but if we want to label people because they may have broken a law There's not a person that I deal with on a day-to-day basis who hasn't broken the law. Everybody who's listening to this podcast has broken some law, but we don't define people by that. It's specifically a term that has been used to dehumanize people, and it makes it a lot easier to do terrible things to people when you dehumanize them. Just this week, five, the term that I use are undocumented immigrants, five undocumented people in Texas were assassinated and murdered in cold blood by another undocumented person. And instead of talking about what causes this and what we should do to help it, the governor decided to go out and make a big deal of they're illegal immigrants. If they were U.S. citizens, those AR-15 bullets wouldn't have been stopped in midair because of that. So using terms to dehumanize people just takes away from this. And I'm an advocate. And we, even if you're on the other side, as I was when I was a prosecutor for the government, we've got roles that we play in the court. And our jobs are to treat people humanely, go for justice. So when you use these dehumanizing terms, it's big. So I prefer the term undocumented. And I think that is what is the accepted term. Now, I will tell you, One very interesting thing that happened was undocumented was not a controversial term. When Donald Trump became president, he directed the government to begin to reuse that term illegal. So you would hear it happening, and that would be a wild change that the government dipped into and intentionally went for the most controversial term. And that kind of tells you where they were going with a lot of their policies.
1: Tell us about the term violated their status and out of status. Tell us those are used.
2: So actually, let's talk about two other terms that people use. And these are, I'm a law nerd, words matter, right? So the term that most people use when somebody is out of status and they're made to leave the country is the term deported. Deported is actually a term from the law from before 1996. The actual term now is called removal. All right. Deportation and removal in lay terms are basically the same thing, but they actually mean something different. The reason I bring that up is out of status versus undocumented means something different. So out of status is somebody who came with a visa of some sort into the country legally and has done something To lose that status.
3: What if it just runs out? Does that include that either?
2: Expiration. Okay. Somebody who's out of status, you're here and you work when you're not allowed to, you're out of status, you're here, you break a law, you're out of status. Undocumented means that you entered the country without ever being inspected. So you came in here without any paperwork. You did not come into the country legally. And it really does make a big difference because there are parts of the immigration law that are racist, whether they were intentionally racist or not, they are though. So, here is the thing that we deal with the most. I'll give you two different scenarios. I have a French college student, gets a visa, comes into America. When they land at JFK, they're going to see an immigration officer. You guys have traveled. Across the country, across the world. You go to France, you hand them your passport, they're going to have an interaction with a person at the airport for about a minute. What are you doing here? Boom, boom, they stamp. That's considered an inspection. If that French person comes into America, overstays their visa, violates their visa, and then gets married to an American citizen, I can shoot straight towards getting them a green card because they were inspected. That one minute at the airport. Now, let's say I have somebody who comes from Mexico, crosses the border, turns themselves in to Homeland Security. Homeland Security detains them. They do a full background check on them. They put that person on an ankle monitor. That person has to come into an ICE office every two weeks. They come in each time they do a background check. They sit with that ICE officer for an hour. They're talked to. Okay. Now, this person marries a U.S. citizen. According to the fiction of the law, they've never been inspected, even though law enforcement has spent hours hours
3: hours with them, done background
2: checks, talked to them, but they didn't have that one minute at the airport. So now if that person gets married to a U.S. citizen, I can't get them a green card. I have to do all of these different waivers. It's three times as Is it just
3: based on the country of origin?
2: It's based on how you came into America. Okay. So when you use terms like out of status, typically people who are out of status have more options as compared to somebody who never had status, who was either okay. undocumented or what we call eWE, entered without inspection. And here's some fallacies. Right now, the great majority of the people who are in this country without immigration status, and this has been like this for 10 plus years, are people who came in with visas and overstayed. It's not the people crossing the border. Now we're talking like a 60 to 40, 55, 45 ratio, But I think most Americans think that the great majority of the people who are in this country without status are people who came across the border. The other thing, the largest groups of people that are like that are actually Chinese. It's not Mexican and-
3: The ones that overstate?
2: The overstate. It's not Mexicans, not Central Asians, Central Americans. So I think a lot of people perceive what's going on very incorrectly.
1: The debate has changed over the decades. But do, would you like to summarize like how vastly things have changed? since? So
2: I would have everybody who's listening to this just do a Google search for Reagan-Bush immigration debate. This was a debate in 1980. So we're talking 43 years ago between the scions of the Republican Party before Donald Trump. This is Governor Ronald Reagan versus Congressman and former CIA Director George H.W. Bush. And they're at a debate with the League of Women Voters in Texas. And a person in the crowd asks, and he uses the term, what would you do with the illegal problems we're facing? And the first person is George Bush, President Bush. And he proceeds to talk about how we should not be vilifying these people. It breaks his heart to think that they're young, undocumented kids who might not be able to go to school and might not wow. be able to get medical care. Well, that and that, that he would make sure that they get free schooling, free medical, that they're treated the exact same way, that they're good. He even says these are good people, to an uproarious, uh, a huge response. He says some of the Democratic of them, convention. Like. <laughs> and then Ronald Reagan comes in and you expect, oh, Ronald Reagan to slam him on this. And Ronald Reagan goes even farther. He says, first, because of his focus on communism, he takes a pot shot at Cuba. And then he goes and says, you know what? These people have a problem down there. And if that, their problems that they're having are often caused by us. So we have an obligation to them. And then he says two things that just blow my mind. We shouldn't be talking about building walls and fences. We should open the border allow people to come freely back and forth, let them work, let them pay taxes. This is a position, to be clear, this is a position to the left of AOC's position. This is a position to the left of Bernie Sanders' position. The argument that you hear in immigration is that both sides have gotten extreme, and it's absolutely not true. The position of the right, especially since the Trump years, has gone so far to the right, and the Democrats have gone along. And their position, maybe what we would consider centrist now, is well to the right of what Ronald Reagan's position was. And you see this happening in America. Conservative communities voting for anti-immigration bills, voting and saying, we don't want these people here. And then invariably, somebody in their community gets caught up in this. And then they rally around this person and they say, Everybody else, but not our guy who owns the Mexican restaurant, not our guy who's the handyman in time.
3: You know, about, it had to be maybe 10, 20 years ago, there was a series of articles in the paper in St. Louis. I think it was the Post Dispatch. And it had to do with, you know, the economic well-being of our area. Each paper had a, an article looking at a certain aspect of why we're not doing well or how we could do better. And one of the, one of the articles had to do with immigration. The bottom line was it's, they said it's such an important economic driver in, in a community, and they ranked St. Louis as, like, very low compared to other cities and it was the reason, it was one of the rain, main reasons why we weren't being as competitive as we could be because we didn't have enough immigrants. I'm from, my father was born in Lebanon. I'm a first-generation American. My daughter-in-law is from Iraq. My oldest son's wife, my, my other daughter-in-law, her family's from Jordan. I come from a family of immigrants. And I can tell you, I mean, it, it, like somebody was given a talk, I forget who it was, at the naturalization service, and, I, and the talk that he gave was terrific, and it was how immigrants, and this isn't first generation or say, these are the people who, this is their second country, and he was listing statistics in terms of college education, degrees, patents applied for, and it was amazing. The article that I was talking about in the Post, it had household income, that's what it was, it, had, it listed household income for immigrants in the St. Louis area, and it was higher, significantly higher than average household income. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm, and really, these are the people who are the go-getters. These are the people who are risking life and limb and bringing their whole family to another country to do better. If they can do that, you, you, you can be guaranteed once they get here, they're not going to be sitting on their butt. They're going to be doing something to, to, to actually better their lives.
2: And we've seen that across the board. One of the statistics that I think people don't appreciate is that the... Demographically, the person who is most beneficial to the American economy is an undocumented male under the age of 30. And there's a lot of reasons for it, and some of them are bad. Because they don't have proper documentation, they tend to be uh, exploited more, get paid less, and work a lot. If we got rid of our undocumented population, you would see all grocery prices probably double. There would be no golf courses in America, virtually... I can tell you if I went to almost every golf course in America and I went through who their grounds crews are, almost all major restaurants, we depend on immigrants. But then, yes, people who hustle to get here continue to hustle. If you go to the George W. Bush presidential website, he's got a bunch of statistics about immigrants, about misconceptions. Immigrants use the welfare system at a rate less than natural natural born Americans. One statistic that I always find that is used against immigrants is this statistic that Breitbart actually pushed out for a while, that an undocumented immigrant commits crime at a rate two to three times as much as a documented immigrant does. Wow, that seems bad. Two to three times as much as a documented immigrant. But they never tell you about the other part of the statistic, that undocumented immigrant commits crime at a rate one half of what a natural born American does. So sitting in a room with me as an immigrant who was born across the country, it's you two white guys that were born here that I should be worried about robbing me. Because statistically, I'm like seven to eight times less likely to be a criminal than you guys so before I leave I'm going to check my wallet. I'm going to make sure that I'm cool. But nobody ever talks about that. You're just looking at one That's little a... window. How political this has become is
3: always been nuts. to if, me. if it's so beneficial for American business, why is it why isn't the at least the Republican party embracing it?
2: Because it gives them a cudgel, you know. It as we've seen There's always somebody to be against. They're the greatest hits. Gay marriage. Gay marriage was the big thing for a while until gay people started to married. And then people were like, these weddings are fun and I've got friends who are married and weird, my wife hasn't left me yet because of this. We see there's always the next thing and the visuals are big. I'm saying all this up, but we also have to acknowledge that we do have a crisis at the borders. But the crisis, I would ask people to look at what the crisis is. Is the crisis that these people are crossing the border and coming into America without documentation? Or is the crisis that things are happening south of our border that are so bad that moms and dads are so desperate that they're putting their 12-year-old kids onto trains by themselves because for them, the risk of putting their kid on a train and sending them to a country that they don't know anybody and has A lot
3: less staying where they're at. A lot less. Yeah. The
2: only people who leave their homes are people whose homes are inside of the mouth of a shark is an adage that one of my clients told me. So what is happening there? We're seeing a huge group of people who are coming into America right now. There's probably about 20 to 40,000 people at the border. A lot of them are Nicaraguans. Well, Nicaragua just strip citizenship from 222 opposition party members and kick them out of the country. When you see countries that are basically saying, if you're against the government, we're not just going to say bad things about you. We're going to jail you, strip your citizenship. Time to leave. Yep. Strip your family's citizenship. Time to go or something bad is going to happen. We should be focusing on that as much as we're focusing on the other stuff.
1: Assume you're an attorney who knows nothing about immigration law. And- I
2: assume that about myself on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> <so>.
1: <laughs> always we're always learning early. And you <laughs> say, okay, I'm gonna go buy the book of statutes. Tell us about that.
2: The immigration law and statutes of the United States are twenty five hundred pages long. They are the it's the second longest law in world history. The only law that is longer than tax that code. is the US tax code. I've had environmental attorneys argue with me that the Clean Water Act is longer, but that's because there are thousands of pages of like scientific reports added to the back of it. I'm talking about actual regulatory and statutory text. If you ever meet an immigration attorney that says they know it all, they don't. I've got very specific places that I work in. I do a lot of work with criminal cases. I do a lot of work with family-based cases. I don't do a lot of business outside of Major League Baseball. I represent two major league baseball teams, but I have other attorneys who do this. One of the things that I've learned is that immigration law, though, bleeds into virtually every type of other law that there is. If you are a divorce attorney and you're dealing with a case in which somebody's undocumented, often there are things that can happen that a person can be protected under the Violence Against Women's Act if there's abuse. If you have a client who is a victim of a crime, often there could be things that we can do to legalize their status. Personal injury. I was actually just dealing with a case right now in which there's a big, we're talking about eight-figure personal injury suit, and the victim was in the U.S. legally, but had gone home and was coming back into the country for the trial, and something went wrong with his immigration and he couldn't make it to his own trial, and his trial got kicked. If I had a client that I could make $10 million on that wasn't American, why wouldn't I be talking to an immigration attorney every single time to make sure that they're doing things things that are proper? Criminal cases, if you're pleading guilty to a violation, INA section 101A43 has a list of about 25 aggravated felonies. But the word aggravated doesn't mean the same thing in the criminal context. Are you pleading your guy guilty to something that isn't that big a deal and is a good deal but is now going to get that person removed from the country? There's a lot of overlap here and the law is broken. Eric and I were talking about this a few days ago. There's an enormous typo in the immigration law that's actually changed criminal law in two states. To make this as basic as possible, if a person is convicted of a crime A lot of exceptions case by case, but generally the idea was if you committed a felony, that's bad enough that you might face removal. If it's a misdemeanor, you usually get a one to two times two freebies, right? And in one part of the law, it says if the crime that you were convicted of has a maximum sentence of more than a year, then you can be in trouble. And if it doesn't have a sentence that's more than a year, you might not be in trouble. But in the second part of the law, I'm guessing this was some intern someplace messed it up. It says you can be in trouble if you are committed a crime in which the maximum penalty is one year or more. Uh-oh. You said, oh because yeah, right. what is the maximum penalty for almost every misdemeanor? Yeah. One year. That was supposed to be more than one year, not one year That's or
3: more. it enters into the realm of felony.
2: Right. So now a lot of people... Hundreds of thousands of people have been removed from this country for committing misdemeanors. And we've known about this error for twenty some odd years. Is and
3: we haven't got discretionary or no. it's mandatory.
2: So when we do immigration criminal stuff, we don't look at the facts of the case. It's all a math equation. So what's very interesting is two states they've been waiting for Congress to fix this and they haven't. And two states that are politically very different have fixed this. California and Utah. In California, in, yeah, in California and Utah, statutorily, they've changed the definition of a misdemeanor. And now the maximum penalty you can get in those two states instead of being one year is 364 days. And the only reason that you think that anybody cares about that one extra day, they did it because of immigration.
3: Wow. So I guess they couldn't get the federal law changed, so they changed the state laws to, to fix the federal problem.
2: Yeah, and this is where we talk about the political cudgel. The majority... Of people in both parties agree that there should be immigration reform. We're talking about doubt to even the most conservative Republicans realize that this is broken. The whole Chamber of Commerce nationwide knows that our system isn't working. We've seen large inflation in America. When you drill down on it, it's because of two reasons. There's lots of reasons, but there are two real reasons that have been pushing this. Number one has been we've lost at least a million if not close to 3 million people, from our workforce because of COVID, either through death, long COVID, or people who just, I know people who are teachers who are just like, I'm not doing it anymore. People who are just like, I'm done. I don't want to be in this environment anymore. And then when you look at the major crackdown on immigration that the Trump administration has, we've lost a large number of immigrant workers.
3: Out of the workforce, yeah.
2: So when you see, when you go, to your McDonald's, and nobody's at that McDonald's and it's closed, it's not a $50,000 liberal arts person that was working there. It was a low-skill worker. That affects us. So the business community has seen that, and we still can't get it because there's a political aspect of let's keep immigration broken.
1: Let's go back to Criminal law? Uh Let's assume you have an undocumented person as your client, and it's a criminal case, and you're thinking they're offering a plea of an SIS. Are you okay on that?
2: Under immigration law, an SIS, which is a suspended imposition of sentence, a diversion program, a suspended execution of sentence, any of those things are considered convictions in immigration law. So an SIS does not help you. So what I always tell somebody is, If you've got a criminal case with somebody who, and they don't have to be undocumented. Remember this area. What if somebody's here also legally? You're here on an H-1B visa because you're a computer programmer for Facebook, right? You've done everything legal and you get into some kind of trouble. You, Here's another one. Weed is legal in most of America right now. Weed is not legal under the federal law. So if you're filed with weed in Missouri, and San Diego, in Chicago, you can get in trouble under the immigration laws. And it said it's 2,500 pages long. If you're dealing with a criminal attorney, a criminal client, the idea that you would research this yourself seems insane to me.
1: What if an attorney is trying to help a client try to immigrate to the U.S. and do it the right way, follow all the rules? What are the hurdles?
2: There are... Not many ways to come to America legally, but there are a few. And the three most common ways to come to America are you come because a family member has applied for you to come. You come because of a work position, or you come because of some kind of protection, asylum, refugee status. There are a few other exceptions that aren't that big, but those are the three main ones. But let's talk about what you do when it's a family member. So there's a lot of misconceptions out here. President Trump talked about how one guy's coming in and he's a bad hombre and he's going to bring his aunts and uncles and cousins. If there was any way for us to apply for aunts and uncles to come in, I would make so much more money. It would make my life so much better because I could figure out how to do that. In reality, that's not even possible. There are three factors that determine how a person can apply for a family member to come in. And we'll talk about the visa bulletin in a second. The first thing is, what is the petitioner's status? Only two types of people can apply for somebody to get a green card, either a US citizen or a permanent resident. A permanent resident, otherwise known as a green card holder, is a person who's on their way to getting citizenship. They typically can get citizenship three to five years later. Okay, so John, who do you think has more rights in the U.S., the citizen or the permanent resident?
3: I would say the citizen.
2: Right. So a citizen generally can get more people in. Citizens are allowed to apply for their parents. Permanent residents aren't. Citizens are allowed to apply for their siblings. Permanent residents aren't. And it's faster. The next thing that we talk about is how close the relationship is. Eric, do you think it would be quicker for me to bring my wife in or my 40-year-old brother?
1: I don't know. I'd go you're, with the
3: wife.
2: The wife, right? Now, so The closer <laughs> you are to your nuclear family, there's less time for parents, spouses, and minor children. The third thing is what country you're from. Okay, There are four countries. Is that specifically? Very specifically. Okay. But every country has a certain number of people that can come in per year. So that number has been stagnant for years. So in the employment world, you're actually seeing that because of the number of Indian workers that we're bringing over. Their backlogs are in the decades to get over here. But so the four countries where it takes longer are mainland China, the Philippines, Mexico, and India. These are four large countries.
3: What's the the rationale behind that?
2: It's not a rationale. It's that the government has put a limit on the number of people, and they've had so many applicants for the years that have gone beyond that limit that it's just a backlog. So your three factors are what's the petitioner's? Relationship. relationship, how closely related they are, and what country they're from. So when I hear people say, hey, we need to do it legally, I ask them how. So if you've got somebody, the fastest top of the line are, I'm a US citizen applying for my immediate relative, my unmarried child, or my spouse. That's our fastest. And that within the US takes between a year and a, to a year and a half Outside, If they're outside of the U.S., takes between a year and a half to three years. And that's with no backlog. That's just the processing time. But I ask people when they tell me, let's do it legally. Okay. So I'm pulling up right now the State Department's visa bulletin for May 2023. It'll pull up in a second. And I ask them, okay, what is reasonable? How long would you be willing to wait? So I, you go down, you'll see the definitions, spouses and children of permanent residents, married sons and daughters. It's longer once you become twenty one. If you're a child, the you know, child means so under twenty one. Yep. It's longer if you're married, because you're going to be bring people with you. So I say, okay. In America, we care about family. Family is so important to us, right? So let's say I'm a U.S. citizen, and I've got a daughter who is French. She's not married, so she would be a first priority, an unmarried son and daughter of a U.S. citizen. I want to do this legally. And we're doing this in May 2023. I'm looking at the chart right now. For France, they are processing applications that were filed on December 15th, 2014. Your backlog to bring your adult child over here is eight and a half years. But that's for France. Let's look at Mexico, though. Mexico. April 1st, 2001. If you want to bring your adult daughter here from Mexico, and she has to stay unmarried during this whole time. If she gets married, oh, things are going to get, everything gets bad. You would have had to have the foreshadowing to file for her five months before September 11th happened.
3: So the eight-and-a-half-year backlog, Uh does that mean that the wait is
2: eight-and-a-half years? Uh Uh-huh, before they'll even look at the application. That's how long it takes for that, and this number changes. So next year could be nine years. So Are
3: there bigger. any countries that it happens within a year or two?
2: So if you're a U.S. citizen applying for your spouse, yeah, you know that can. But for your kids, no. The quickest, I, that's the quickest I see. December fourteenth, December two thousand and fourteen. I call this a money problem. If you've got the money that you could start this application process and wait, why not start it? Because the longer you wait, you're gonna get farther back. But that's not the crazy one here. Here's the one that I find to just be nuts. When people are talking to me about people need to do it legally, right? They're talking about, they're not talking about French people. It's always they're talking about people south of the border. So let's say here's one. I'm a US citizen. My daughter is Mexican. She is married. I would have. We are doing applications for a Mexican November 1st, 1997.
3: So basically, what I'm hearing well,
2: it, So ju- yeah, just, I was 22 in 1997. Yeah. I'm 48 now. The amount years. of time it takes is longer than half of my life.
3: So basically, it's non existent. It Legal immigration, what you're saying, is essentially non existent. The only way to get here is the way they're trying to get here.
2: Outside of these immediate relative things and some high skilled workers.
3: So when you say it needs to be fixed is that primarily what we're talking about to fix the bl-
2: backlog? There are some things that we could absolutely do to fix the backlog. One of them is yes, fix the backlog.
3: This you know, is crazy. Listen to this is unbelievable. Basically this is non existent the legal means of getting here and immigrating to this country don't exist essentially
2: for large groups of people outside of immediate relatives. Crazy. Yeah. So that's
3: so we money. don't allow immigration in the U.S. Basically,
2: for we make it very difficult.
3: No, for people. the people who applied in 1995 are coming over right this year.
2: So then <laughs> we do have on the employment side, we have the ability to bring people over on temporary work.
3: Fees. By the time they get here, they'll be past the working age and be on social security.
2: For some people, yeah, you
3: should let them in early.
2: For some people, get now some we've got out. these weird exceptions. Melania Trump was able to jump to the front of the line because she was able to use the genius visa, which applies to Nobel laureates, athletes, and, and models. And president's mod- model. Oh, this was before <laughs> uh, she was the president of life. Models fall into that category. So there are
3: ways to do this. Really okay. smart or you're nice looking. We'll let you in. Right. Put so
2: I clearly did not get the nice looking. But the way that we got it was my dad came to the United States, got a Ph.D., and then while he was in the United States, was able to have somebody sponsor him at SIU-Edwardsville for a green card because he had a PhD. Like he was, as you were talking before about Lebanon and all this, for many years, Iranians, we were the highest educated people in America. That's not to say Iranians are genetically smarter than everybody else. We're talking about the subset of Iranians that were able to get out of Iran. That means that we came from resources. We came, we're generally educated. The people who were able to get out were the people who had a lot of things in place that allowed them to yeah. proceed.
3: My my father came in forty seven when he was 10, 12, 10 years old. Not a lot going on in the world in nineteen forty seven. And but he actually brought his sister, his married sister, my aunt, and her husband, and my three cousins, and they came over in uh, in seventy seven, mid seventies. Yeah. But it has been we still have relatives there, and it's there's it's not even. nobody's coming over.
2: The green card application that my dad filed was four pages long. The applications now that I file with all of the secondary documents, and this is just paperwork, is about 75 pages. When I put in a green card application, I usually have between one to 500 pages of extra evidence on it.
1: Javad, we're going to take a pause in this podcast at this point. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for agreeing to come back for one more episode. Our topic is immigration, and we'll be back with another episode. This has been another episode of The Jury is Out. I'm Eric i
3: I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time.
0: The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.